to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, gang, we are here once again. Thank you for joining me on the Lions of Liberty podcast where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty, just as we do over at our website, lionsofliberty.com. If you aren't checking it out by now, what are you waiting for? Connect with us on social media, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty, twitter at lionsofliberty. Now, as I have confessed previously on this podcast, I am a fan of professional wrestling. And I'm sure a lot of you out there will say a lot of the same things that a lot of people say about pro wrestling. It's for kids. It's stupid. It's silly. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. It's quote-unquote fake. Well, it's not fake. It's just scripted. Much like all the other TV shows you guys watch, you know? 24 is scripted, too, but no one says it's fake. It looks like a fake to me. Fake, fake, fake. Of course it is. It's a TV show. It's all TV shows. It's all entertainment. Fake, but I like it. And I get the pro wrestling is not for everybody. What kind of nonsense is this? But that's kind of the cool thing about having your own podcast. You can take things in whatever direction you want. Now, look, I'm not going to have a whole show where I harp on about the merits of watching professional wrestling. It's definitely not for everybody. Whereas Liberty, the ideas of Liberty, those I think are for everybody. But being a pro wrestling fan does have some similarities to being a libertarian or to just being somebody who talks about hot-button topics. If you're at a party, you mention you're a wrestling fan... You're probably going to get a funny look from some people. They're going to look at you weird. You're going to immediately make yourself a little bit of an outcast. That's similar to being a libertarian and maybe having some different ideas about things. Taking controversial positions, or at least positions that seem controversial to others. People might give you that same look. That, what the heck is this guy talking about look? Well, my guest here with me today has experience with all of that stuff. He is a professional wrestler who has appeared in numerous wrestling promotions, including... WWE, Ring of Honor, and most recently, Lucha Libre USA. From Phoenix, Arizona, weighing 225 pounds, R.J. Brewer! R.J. Brewer, welcome into the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. I'm glad you could come on today. I mean, I wish I could say you were the first pro wrestler I've ever had on the show, but I did speak with Glenn Jacobs, also known as WWE's Kane, back in episode six. And, you know, I guess that's kind of the cool thing about having my own podcast, because I'm a pro wrestling fan, have been since I was a kid, and it's pretty cool that I get to have certain people that I see on TV on to talk about some common interests that we might have. RJ, before we get into all this political stuff, I'm kind of curious... How did you first get into pro wrestling? I assume you were around the same age. I assume you were probably a fan around the same time I was growing up watching Hulk Hogan, Macho Man, all those guys. So how did you take that early interest and turn that into your current career? I was most definitely a fan growing up as a kid. I think the first time I watched wrestling was around 1986. So that made me about seven years old. And I remember going over to my cousin's house. I just kind of got hooked from watching it. I remember they were doing the year in review, Hulk Hogan and... Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior and Demolition and Strike Force and, and, you know, the larger-than-life personalities, the athleticism, and, you know, pretty much the reason everybody becomes a wrestling fan. I wouldn't say I was obsessed, but I was a huge fan as a kid and all through my elementary school, middle school, high school, and 
I just seem to be the guy defending it from everybody else. Like, oh, that's just fake. And, you know, of course, I refused to believe that. And I loved it so much that I just didn't really care. And I was kind of an outcast because I was that wrestling fan. That's really all I talked about. So, you know, I was a big fan. And I just decided after high school that I was going to go to college and I was going to try to play football in college. And it wasn't really a thought to become a wrestler because I was very small. I think I graduated high school less than 140 pounds. So it was very undersized. And obviously, back then, uh, nobody that size would even be able to be a referee, let alone a wrestler. So I just kind of chalked it up to him and continue being a wrestling fan. I'm going to go to college and play football. But going into my freshman year in college, I had hit my growth spurt and started lifting weight for school. And I, I weighed uh, about 160 pounds, 165 pounds going into college. So I put like 25 pounds on in the summer just from working out and eating. And as the years got by, I got sick of playing football and I became more passionate about wrestling. And then when I felt that, you know, I'm the right size now, maybe I can go try this. And, you know, the rest is kind of history from there. So when did you first get the political bug? Was that during your college years or was it earlier? When did you first start getting interested in all this stuff? I didn't really pay much attention to politics at all. Even when I was first legal to vote, I never did. And even throughout my wrestling career, my first 10 years, I was just kind of this pro wrestler who would have good matches. You know, I wrestled for Ring of Honor. I wrestled for Independence up in the Northeast. And WWE was, was using me for a couple of years, and my goal was to go there. I was just kind of this wrestler who was respected because I had good matches, but I never really had a voice. I never really had a platform, and, and nobody could really identify with who I was because I was just this wrestler. You know, and I would get applauses, and people would respect what I did in the ring, but you know, pro wrestling is a very visual and verbal sport, and I was just kind of that guy who didn't get noticed because I just kind of kept my mouth shut. But when I got presented with this opportunity to go wrestle for Lucha Libre USA and do this, you know, anti-immigration skit, I was almost forced to be more of a political character, and I think that kind of propelled me into uh, learning more and actually start researching not just immigration but the other stuff, and that got me a lot more passionate than I was in the past. So I, I was kind of non-existent on the political front before, but... Now it's like more people want interviews about politics than they do wrestling, which is kind of cool. And yeah, and to make it in pro wrestling, I mean, obviously, A, you need to be a great athlete, you need to be really good in the ring, but you also need to find a way to connect with the audience, whether it's for a positive reaction as a you know a good guy or a negative reaction, which is kind of the one you solicit over it with your work in Lucha Libre. So I don't know if you came up with the R.J. Brewer character or if that was something that you kind of worked with Lucha Libre on. How did that all come together as the current character of R.J. Brewer, who is, for those that don't know, kind of the implied son of Arizona Governor Jan Brewer, who signed the controversial SB 1070 bill that does allow police in Arizona to ask for proof of citizenship during a police encounter if they suspect that someone is here illegally. So how did that character develop? When Lucha Libre USA first decided that they were going to put their program on MTV2, I got an email from the writer, and he basically introduced himself and said, uh, you were referred to me by a lot of people. They might be interested in, in doing this. And, and my first response was, well, Lucha Libre, that's, you know, you got the wrong guy. That's not, that's not my style. You know, I didn't, that's not, but he said, well, we have a particular character for you. So, you know, they called me and explained it to me. And they had the name. They had the basic premise of what R.J. Brewer was going to be. But, you know, the best wrestling personalities are when you're extending your real life a little bit. So you look at guys like The Rock and Steve Austin. You know, those guys obviously turn, you know, they turn up their character for the TV. But those, from what I understand, those guys are really who they are. So when I got certain scripts of things I had to say, I was like, well, you know, I wouldn't say this stuff. So I kind of cater-made the R.J. Brewer person into what I would feel more comfortable saying. And I just kinda, it just kind of took off. I was, you know, scripting my own promos and just going out there saying stuff that I really felt. 
and I think that's why it resonated so good with the crowd and all those big media appearances like Nightline, Fox News, and CNN came because it was really catching on. It was very controversial and topical at the time. Yeah, it really is kind of an ingenious character because, you know, for those that aren't familiar, Lucha Libre is essentially a Mexican-style wrestling company, and I presume most of the people you work with, most of the other wrestlers, are of Mexican heritage or Latino heritage, as is the audience. So when you have kind of a character out there denouncing legal immigration and coming across vaguely racist, I don't think you are actually racist at all in your character, but I think there is, in terms of the heel character you play, there is some implications there. Sometimes your character will say things like, oh, I guess you didn't bring your translator today, stuff like that. One of your promos that I thought was absolutely hilarious was when you're walking along a border fence and you see three of the luchadors, the masked wrestlers, jump over the fence in a mask. So it's, it's stuff like that that I think is just kind of in a meta way makes this R.J. Brewer character so genius. And it must be because WWE basically copied that character with Jack Swagger. Can you describe that? The first time you saw Jack Swagger on TV, what you thought? I remember I was on my uh, bed reading a book, and I remember I had like three text messages from people saying, you need to turn on, and obviously I couldn't, and then I remember on my Facebook page, I had a couple messages, people saying, you know, uh, oh, R.J. Brewer's gimmick is being done now on, on Raw, so uh, a couple days later, I I looked it up on YouTube, and I saw it, and it was the same thing, the same reason I gave people when they said, well, why don't you go do that in WWE, was the same reason that they weren't getting a reaction with it is because it's the, I, I felt it was the wrong demographic, the wrong audience. The reason my character has worked so well for Lucha Libre USA is because we're wrestling in front of Mexican fans uh, against Mexican wrestlers and in Mexican city, you know, Mexican-based cities. When you have two guys going out there screaming about border control and immigration to a bunch of 12-year-old kids, they're not really going to care all that much. So I remember one time somebody telling me that they were getting boring chance clear as day on Raw and um, from all accounts, the whole thing didn't really work. So I knew it was only a matter of time before they would do something because, you know, WWE's got this attitude like, you know, I don't think so much that they saw me as a threat, but they wouldn't have a problem diminishing anything anybody was doing outside of WWE because, you know, that's how, that's why they are the big wrestling company because they are, they have that business model where we're, we're going to crush everything else. So it didn't bother me all that much. You know, everyone was like, well, you need to say something, you need to do something. I said, well, why? I said, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me. If I hadn't had all those press opportunities before, then maybe I would have been a little upset. But I feel like I was already established as, as this anti-immigration wrestler that I don't think Nightline, Fox, and CNN were going to start profiling their guys because obviously they've already done it once before. So it didn't bother me. It is what it is. It's, it's business. I respect that. And it's cool to see Dutch Mantel on TV, I guess. So, you know, that's kind of cool. And Dutch Mantel, again, for those that don't know that aren't wrestling fans out there, I assume not everybody listening to my show is, but uh, Dutch Mantel plays the character of Zeb Coulter, who is basically the manager of the Real Americans tag team, who are basically a, a very, what I think is a lame takeoff on the R.J. Brewer character. I mean, th- their team's a little bit interesting, but it's vastly different from what you're really doing at Lucha Libre USA does actually garner that emotional reaction from the crowd, like you said, because you're in front of Latino people. You're in front of people who are affected by this issue one way or another every day of their lives. So it does bring a completely different kind of passion, I think, than it does when they try to translate that to more of the general audience of WWE. I want to get down to some of these specifics of these issues. So let's set aside the R.J. Brewer character for a second and give me your kind of real-life and maybe they're very similar, maybe they're exactly the same, but let's just break it down. What is your official stance on immigration, illegal immigration, when it comes to, you know, I guess, U.S. law? Well, you know, the R.J. Brewer character, there's not much difference between the two. Most of the stuff I say, whether it be on my Facebook or on my Twitter, those are my real feelings. It's almost like I get to vent 
through my character, so it's accepted. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. kind of uh, it, it's kind of cool in that sense. But I would feel this way regardless. When it comes to immigration, especially when I'm going out there and you know I have the microphone in front of thousands of Latinos, I'm almost blaming I'm blaming them for the immigration problem in this country. And I don't think a lot of the blame should go on them. The blame should go on the government because um, what would you do if you live in a country where people are getting beheaded and you, you know you don't have the right to bear arms and there's not much money there and, and there's so much poverty and the cops are corrupt, you know the cartels running stuff and killing people? Wouldn't you flee too? I probably would also. So you can't really blame those people for doing it. You have to blame the government, I think, for making it so easy easy to become illegal and so hard to be legal. They adjusted the system and actually put more resources and more time in getting them visas, getting them on the books where they actually start paying taxes. I think that would be so much better. So I think that's the main difference. I, I'm screaming at these people that they need to go, but in essence, I think that the government, I'm not just blaming Obama, it's been, it's been the past administrations, all of them. They've kind of just had this open-door policy, and American citizens have been sold out for Latinos specifically for their vote, and I think that's ridiculous. And Again, I don't put the blame on them so much, um, but when you say, oh, they're law-abiding illegal immigrants, well, no, they're not. They broke the law when, when they first came here, so they're not law-abiding. And then, you know, an amnesty, I mean, look, look at how much of that costs. I, I looked at the, uh, the Heritage Foundation study on illegal immigration, what it costs us, and then what it costs to give them amnesty, and it's outrageous. And then, you know, you got some hardcore liberals that are going to say, oh, well, they're spending money, they're here, they have the consumption tax. That's nothing compared to what it costs us to, uh, to feed them, to, you know, to give them health care, to give them education, and it's one of the main reasons we have such a deficit. So I would say that I definitely do feel strongly against illegal immigration, but just the main difference between me and the character is that I, I put more blame on the government than I do on uh, on the people. Right, and I, I think what you hit on there at the end uh, when you're talking about how, I mean, people see kind of illegals or quote-unquote illegals come over and get, I guess, what you might call some of the same services that normal tax-paying citizen might pay. So I get, you know, 30 40% of my check taken out from me every week, and the government goes ahead and redistributes it all over the place for health care, for welfare, for roads, for, um, you know, invasions of other countries overseas, all sorts of things that I don't think they should be doing with it. But I, the main argument I think that you're making here is that, you know, if we're all paying into this, even if we don't agree we should be necessarily... We can't be taking on even more people that are getting this money that aren't necessarily paying into this system. Is that your basic issue with the illegal immigration? Yeah, definitely. I think I think Ron Paul said it best in the primaries in 2008, where he said, you know, the, our government cares more about the border over in Iraq and Afghanistan than they do our own. And now we're seeing the side effects of that. From you know, they say 11 million illegal immigrants are here, but how do they really know? If they know the exact number, wouldn't they be able to go get them? So I think there's probably more, and especially if they keep breeding and having kids, that's just more taxpayer money that we're that we're eating. So something should have been done a long time ago, and all this immigration reform that they're talking about, the first thing they should do is secure the border. You know, I compare it, when you turn your bathtub on and you completely forget about it and you run back, what's the first thing you do? You shut off the water, right? I mean, you don't start cleaning it up right away, so they need to shut off the water, you know, a.k.a. close the border, and then worry about what to do with the people here. And I don't know if mass deportation is the right thing, because that's going to cost money, too, money that we don't have. But obviously, if there's criminals and there's people here that we're, uh, that we have in jail, because, you know, if you look at a state like California, I think... 75% of the people in the, in the prisons there are illegal. Uh, how much is that costing them to keep us there? Why aren't we deporting them? And I think the, uh, you know, the TSA needs to do a better job. And instead of you know, swabbing eight-month-old babies or bombs, they should be keeping track of people, getting addresses to where they're staying, fingerprinting them, and then when they leave, cross them off the list. And, you know, and then you have employers who should go to jail if they employ an illegal immigrant. I think 
once we start putting certain things in action, it'll help things, but it's a lot of work, and it might even be too late, unfortunately. I don't know. How does the RJ Brewer character and your actual beliefs, how does that go over backstage with the other wrestlers? Obviously, like we said, a lot of them are Latino. I don't know what their legal status is. Obviously, I assume most of them are legally allowed to work here. But, you know, does that cause any conflicts, any personal conflicts with anybody backstage? Do they take things the wrong way or are they able to kind of see that you just simply have a different political belief than them, perhaps? Or maybe you have people that agree with you. I don't know. So how does that, how does that work backstage? Well, you know, I have a fairly good reputation with them and, and uh, relationship, and I, I wouldn't say they all agree with me. That's certainly not true, but I think wrestling has this weird brotherhood mentality where no matter what you feel about, you know, political views or, or whatever it might be, we're all pro wrestlers and we all kind of respect each other, even though we might not agree with each other. And um, not just so much the wrestlers, but even the fans. You'd be surprised how many fans want my picture after the show, even after I've been screaming to them about their legal status and whatnot. So. It's kind of interesting when you have these fans even who want your picture or want an autograph after the show, and these are fans you've just been screaming at about their legal status. You've just been wrestling their hero, someone like Blue Demon Jr., who's you know an icon and a legend in Mexico, and I'm sitting there fighting him and telling him that what he represents is wrong, and they still want my picture. So I think the fact that you're a pro wrestler and you're going out there, you're doing these cool moves, and you're showing this athleticism as part of a show, they go there to have fun. So I... Even though there are a lot of fans who do get emotionally invested and, and hate my guts and throw stuff at me and probably want to kill me, there are also a few that, that want that autograph and want that picture, and uh, I think they get it. They get that we're there to entertain them. Whether or not it's my real beliefs or not is probably irrelevant to them. They just want to have fun and, and you know suspend their beliefs for a couple hours, and that's what they do. Sure. I mean, if your character and your beliefs that that character espouses makes those fans hate you, well, that, that it's just making them hate you enough to show up to watch you get beat up, which means you're doing your job right. And uh, from, from what I can tell, Lucha Libre has been doing pretty well as far as very small independent promotions goes. Obviously, it's very difficult to even compete, and I don't think you guys even try to compete with the WWE. That's pretty much impossible. But you have developed a cool little niche, I think, and I, I've been checking that out on Hulu Plus recently. And uh, it's entertaining stuff. If, if any of those wrestling fans are still here listening, please go check out Lucha Libre USA over on Hulu Plus. Now, I want to talk about, get more in depth on this immigration thing a little bit, because I have some issues with the immigration debate, and both sides of it, really. And I think when it really comes down to it, talking about this in kind of an illegal versus legal way, it really ignores the real issue to me, which I think the real issue that we have is that it should be based on property rights. And we talk about borders and people crossing borders. And obviously, the United States has certain borders that were established by the government, X number of years ago, who knows how those borders were established. In many ways, you can say they were established illegitimately through simply a war or through simply the government taking land from people. So it's very difficult to kind of sort out, you know, you can go all the way far back in history to try to sort out what a quote unquote legitimate border is or not. Obviously, in the current situation we live in, in the current legal context, those borders are the, you know, quote-unquote legitimate borders of the United States. But I think when we talk about it in terms of people crossing that border, it kind of ignores the issue of personal property rights. Obviously, we don't live in a society where we all have those personal property rights respected, and that's why the government takes our property. They take our money from us. They take our wealth from us, and they redistribute it all over the place. So there is a certain logic to your stance, and I think it's very important to address that where, yeah, we are all having our money stolen from us, so why should the people that aren't even having it as much stolen get those same goods, I guess? Um, but again, when it comes down to it, I think that it's a lack of respect for private property, and that's what we need to be attacking, not so much the people. And you even said it earlier today, you said you don't really think it's the people that are to blame, because I know, 
I think pretty much all of us are descended from someone that fleed kind of a bad situation. Like you said, in Mexico, not allowed to have gun ownership. There's cartels that are basically working with the Mexican government as well as the U.S. government that basically run the place. So it can be a very, very difficult situation for people down there and for people in many different countries as well. So it's absolutely logical for those people to try to, I guess, escape and to find a better situation for yourself. But I think the biggest problem with this debate is that Mexican people, not just Mexicans, but that is where most of the debate kind of centers around Latinos that come up from the South and, and come over this border. It kind of does scapegoat those people, and it doesn't really address the problem of government, of government not respecting a private property society. Now, if we actually had a private property society, the issues of who's legal and illegal wouldn't even be a question in the first place because it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. Either, you know, certain people would own property. And they would allow people on their property that they wanted to be on there. And others, they would disallow other people. But when we kind of have a situation where the government decides what is quote-unquote public property, what is quote-unquote private property, it makes things really, really fuzzy. And that's when I think we get distracted from the main issues. So what do you think about that, I guess, is my little rant there. I agree. I, I agree a lot with what you said. Um, I read Judge Napolitano's book on a plane once. And he wrote about a lot of the abuses the government used with uh, with eminent domain and, and how they can say, well, you know, this, this one tree branch would be more beneficial for the people so we can take your house. And it, it's completely ridiculous. And you look at the property taxes people pay, and, you know, I've been looking at property in New Hampshire over the past year to, you know, potentially go up there. I like the government there. I like the gun laws, the libertarian base. But you look at the real estate prices, it's completely insane. And do you actually ever really own your house? You know what I mean? You can pay off your... 15 or 30 year mortgage, but you end up owning your house in the end. Um, the government owns it because they, you know, you're paying these taxes, and if they start inflating, keep inflating stuff the way they are, you're not going to be able to afford the taxes, let alone the mortgage. So, you know, I'm kind of old school. I think you should, you should be a, a landowner to vote still. You know what I mean? I, I wouldn't have a problem if they went back to that. But yeah, I, I agree. If there was more personal property, uh, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so much of an issue. But, you know, the way it is right now, we do have borders, and those are federal borders that they're supposed to be protecting, and they're not. They're not securing them. And they're just spending their resources elsewhere, and whether it's intentional, whether it's just complacency, or whether it's just purposely, they're just ignoring the border. And, and I think it's just a combination of all of it. They just don't care. The damage has been done so much so far that, I, I don't, like I said, I don't know if anything could ever change. Those people aren't going to go anywhere. They're not going to start mass deporting them. We're still going to have to fund them. And look at how many hospitals in California went bankrupt because of all the illegals that were in there getting free health care. And, you know, when is enough enough? But we could talk about this all day and probably not come to a conclusion at all, just that uh, a lot of damage has been done and whether or not it'll ever change is, is yeah. a mystery. And I guess, like, the biggest issue I have is with this debate is that if someone wants to come over to the United States and they're willing to just come here, and usually they're just doing this in order to better themselves and their family, I guess my idea is where does the federal government get the authority to tell someone that they can't peaceably come somewhere, peacefully buy property, peacefully get a job, and, you know, it's the government that steps in and, and creates all these laws that create that situation in the first place. Let's just take like the minimum wage, for example. The government says, oh, you can't work. No, you can't hire anybody for less than $8 an hour. Well, there are a lot of businesses or farms or what have you that might say, well, $8 an hour doesn't really make sense for us to hire this number of people. We're only going to be able to hire X number. And then this other guy comes over and they're willing to work for much less. And that allows that American business to now run much better. And it allows someone to peacefully exchange their labor for an agreed upon wage. And I have a problem with the government coming in and stepping in between that otherwise voluntary peaceful relationship and saying, no, you can't do that. 
because you didn't fill out X number of paperwork with this federal government, which I don't have a, a ton of respect for with the way they kind of run all their all, everything else. So that's where the issue comes. I do get your side of the issue as well, because, hey, if, there, if you're going to have a system of law and order, if you're going to say these are the rules that we all have to follow, how can you decide that some people don't have to follow them? So I certainly see your side as well. But I, I think that's really the biggest thing I come down to it is when I think about it in terms of individual liberty, in terms of individual rights. That's what I try to, that's kind of what we do on our website. We break everything down to issues of liberty. So when I look at it that way, I have the problem when the government steps in between those two people making that contractual relationship to agree to work for a certain wage for this or that. And I think when it all comes down to it is everything we come back to, you, you mentioned the prisons, you mentioned California, where I live, going bankrupt because of you know hospitals. But this really, again, always comes back to this idea of socializing absolutely everything, socializing healthcare, socializing prisons, I mean, socializing, and let alone all the laws, you know, we don't even talk about necessarily why are those people in prison. Now, some of them might be in there for violent crimes or what have you. And if that's the case, you know, throw the book at them, of course. But I have to imagine that a lot of those Mexicans or a lot of those illegals are in prison for similar reasons that a lot of African-Americans and white people are in prison here, which is the war on drugs, which, again, is just the government kind of stepping between someone just making a peaceful exchange, buying a plant, that kind of thing. So what do you think about right. my perspective, I guess, from an individual liberty yeah. point of view? I, I agree. And, and I, you know, people always talk about the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. Of course, I think those are, those are um, extremely important, you know, all of them are, but I think that the most forgotten amendment and the one that Obama and, uh, you know, Bush have, have stood on the most is the Tenth Amendment, which is the state's rights, you know. There's a reason we have a republic, there's a reason we have 50 states, and anything that's not designated in the Constitution uh, to the government is up to the states, and that's why I think something like gay marriage, abortion, all, you know, those should all be state right issues. And when you talk about the minimum wage, too, you know, where does it say that they get to set that? You know, historically, raising the minimum wage is not good for the economy. Uh, if if I have $24 an hour in my budget for labor and I have three workers making $8 an hour, then all of a sudden you tell me, well, I have to pay, start paying somebody 10 50 or $11 an hour. Guess what? Someone's losing their job or someone's hours are getting cut or the consumers are going to pay more. So it's not good for the economy. And it's a simple way to look at minimum wage. Like, oh, everyone's going to make more money, but it never works out that way. So, yeah, that's definitely something I don't think the government should, should ever uh, step foot in. But, of course, they've, they've overreached their bounds, not just on minimum wage, but our, on everything. Now, I'm a free market guy, I think. So what's the basic cause of free market? You know, you set, your, you set your labor wage, and whoever wants to come work, works. And I think the more competitive that way, the more jobs there will be and the more money people will start making. And if you're talented at your particular craft, you're going to make more money because people want to hire somebody that's better. They want to control everything, don't they? I mean, that's, that's basically what they're doing now. They want to control health care. They want to control schools. They want to control the mortgage industry, which, you know, they look what they did there. And, uh, yeah, they want to control everything. And now after Obama's State of the Union speech, the 401K, like, well, the government will take care of it. No, I don't want them anywhere near my personal stuff. I don't want them near my money. Of course, you know, paying, it, paying taxes is, is something that we're all going to do, but... When is enough enough when it comes to privacy and how much take they want to have on, on our personal lives? I think is absurd. And it's not so much scary that it's happening. It's so scary that people don't care. That, that's what scares me even more. Yeah, and, that, and that's definitely something that you are active in trying to change is trying to get people to care more. You're extremely active on social media. I follow you on Facebook. You're on there every day with a rant about something, and it, I'm absolutely glad you're out there doing that kind of stuff. You also got a YouTube channel where you talk about a bunch of different issues, not just immigration. 
That's a good segue, because I wanted to ask you about, when you talk about states' rights, I wanted to ask you about SB 1070. That's, again, that controversial bill in Arizona that was passed, I believe, a couple years ago. Basically, that bill, or maybe you can sum it up for people, because you on your tights, as part of your R.J. Brewer character, your wrestling tights, you wear SB 1070 on the back of those tights. So why don't you tell everybody out there just what SB 1070 is and why it is that you support it? Well, there's a bunch of different provisions, and if you read the whole bill, obviously it's you know longer than, than you would want to read. But the basic principle is that, you know, in a routine traffic stop, it's not, you know, a lot of the detractors say, oh, it's racial profiling. Well, no, it's you're not just pulling over a dark-skinned person. It's at a routine stop, whether it be a speeding or, or a traffic violation, whatever it might be, if you suspect that the person might be illegal, then you can ask for ID. But don't you ask for ID anyways? You know what I mean? Uh, and, and don't legal immigrants have to carry their ID with them? So I don't understand why uh, somebody who is here legally has a problem showing their ID. Now, if they didn't do anything, like, you know, if a police officer just came up and asked me for my ID for no reason at all, I wouldn't give it to him. I wouldn't tell him. I wouldn't say a word because you wouldn't have a right to, you know, a right to detain me. But if you've committed a crime and you, they're asking you to prove that you're a citizen, that was basically the principle of it is show us your papers, basically. And, um, you know, a lot of liberals, a lot of, you know, civil rights people took offense to it because they said, well, it's racial profiling and they, uh, people shouldn't have to be deported if they have kids. You know, basically it's tearing families apart and, um, that's basically the message I'm trying to get in the ring is here, you know, I'm, I'm Mr. Brewer from Arizona. I'm representing SB 1070 in the city of Phoenix and show me your papers or uh, I'm going to come unmask every one of you and expose you for who you really are and send you home if you don't belong here. So that, you know, that's, that was my basic message in the wrestling ring that made people so irate. And we just took a topical issue because SB 1070, you ask any of the Latinos, especially in Arizona, what it means, they do know. So when I come out with it, sits on the back of my tights and I have the Arizona flag and I'm talking about immigration, they, they know exactly who I am before I even open my mouth. So it's been good, good to me because it's really made my job a lot easier in getting booed and whatnot. You mentioned deportation there. I think that's another kind of issue with the illegal immigration thing that I find not interesting but sad because there is a sad reality that there are, are people that are going to come over here illegally and those people end up having a family, and then there's the government. Again, it comes back to the government every time. They have these weird laws where the kids are citizens, the parents are not, so sometimes they'll want to deport the parents, but they can't deport the kids because they're citizens, and it creates this whole kind of screwed-up situation. Now, you mentioned the Obama administration before. What I find really interesting, and I only found this out recently, the Obama administration has actually deported somewhere around 2 million illegal immigrants, which is... I believe slightly more, or he will soon pass the record of the George W. Bush administration. So what do you think of that? I mean, do you think that's a good thing that he's deporting people, or do you think we need to just more think about the way we think of the law of, of getting people here in the first place? I don't know. I, I don't know about the deportation thing. I, I have heard the same thing, that he's deported more than Bush, and I don't necessarily think deporting people is, is always the solution. You know, you, you talk about him deporting 2 million people. Well, there shouldn't have been that many people in the first place to deport if the government did their job years back and secured the border and actually started the process of getting people here legally and getting them on the books and working. So, yeah, he deported 2 million people, but how many are left, you know, and how many are still costing us money? So maybe it's his way of saying, hey, look, I'm strict on immigration, but at the same time, he's done certain things that have showed that he's not. It's all playing politics, as it usually is with these guys, huh? Of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, RJ, you recently posted on your Facebook that this would be your last year as a professional wrestler. So I'm wondering, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you thought about it a little bit if you're going to make a statement like that. But what are your plans for life after wrestling? And, of course, the obvious question that a lot of people will be thinking is, do you plan to pursue a career or even just maybe a more active role in the political arena? 
I would say it's safe to say that, that this will be my last year of wrestling, but, I, but I, I can't say with certainty. And like I was saying on my Facebook page, I said it's it's very likely. And I was just kind of putting it out there because it was my 14-year anniversary of wrestling, and I just kind of wanted to thank the fans for their support and that if it was my last year, I wasn't going to be the kind of guy that was going to have a last match and take my boots off and leave it in the ring and give a sad speech and cry. I just I've kind of always just wanted to walk away from it, and, and that's sad, and you know, go on with my regular life, but. I think it's safe to say that it will be my last year unless something happens. If Lucha Libre USA gets a TV deal and they start expanding or, or something you know, worth my while pops up, then maybe I will stick around, but I don't see it happening. I don't want to be one of those guys that leaves wrestling because I have to. I want to leave because I want to, and I'm very healthy now and in very good shape, and I want to keep it that way. So in terms of the political stuff, you know, I definitely thought, of it, thought about it, obviously. But a lot of things would have to happen. You know, obviously money is one thing. You, you know, you need funds look how much money that Romney had and he didn't win. You know what I mean? So you need enough people, enough grassroots efforts to actually make some noise in the political world and actually have a chance. And, you know, not only are you going to battle your opponent, but you're also going to battle the media, especially people with views like us. Um, let's face it. I mean, the media has a big hand in getting people elected and you're not just fighting the machine, you're fighting the media. And then you got to fight people who just are kind of asleep and don't want to hear the truth. And, and no matter how much you tell them, no matter how many facts you present them with, no matter, no matter how many statistics you show them on how Bush and Obama are exactly the same, they, they refuse to believe it. It's their guy versus the other guy. It's us versus them, left versus right. And that two-party system's kind of made people, kind of made people into hypocrites. You know, the same people who are riding in the streets for Bush's war are now not saying a word when Obama's droning people. You know, so it's very disturbing. But I think people are starting to wake up, not as fast as I would like, but. It's something I'm definitely thinking of. If you ask me right now to this day, hey, you want to do it? I say no, but it could happen. I, I don't know for sure, but it's definitely something I'm giving consideration to, and we'll see how the, how the next few years pan out in terms of how many uh, people I can start reaching and um, how many people would actually support me. Yeah, I think it's a great point you make about the left-right system. It just dumbs everybody down to the point that we people... T and I used to be a victim of this, too. You know, I grew up in kind of a small government, Republican-type household, so I always found myself just depend defending Republicans by default and maybe not really thinking deeper about, you know, maybe philosophically why I support them or, or things like that. And it's only been in the last five or six years when you start to realize, and I think a big part of this is, A, the Internet... Uh, just our ability to communicate more directly with each other. You know, the fact that I can make this podcast and put it out there and have people listening to it. There are kind of new ways that we can reach people outside of that mainstream media that presents that left-right paradigm that just dumps us all down. But, yeah, like you said, with the wars, I mean, you find people that have to defend two sides of the same thing just so they can stick to defending their team, defending their side. And it, right, just, it right. just ends debate. I mean, there's no debate at all. That seems to be breaking down at least a little bit. We're, we seem to be able to have kind of closer conversations. Hey, look when the Syria thing was happening. Look how many liberals all of a sudden, oh, I think we should go in there because Obama was saying that we have to do something. And look how many Republicans who were pro-war for eight years under Bush were always saying, like, it's not our war, we shouldn't go there. Like, you know if the roles were reversed, they would be, they would be uh, barking a, a different story. So it's, you know, it's just completely ridiculous how... Uh, a political party, how, how affiliated, how aligned, and how dedicated they are to their party, even though their party does nothing for them. It's just really crazy to me. I don't get it. And, uh, you know, then you start 
you start taking the the whole race thing with Obama into it, and you know how many people are giving him a pass on certain things that they hammered Bush on just simply because of his color or, or because he's a Democrat. I'm going to hold a black president to the same standard as I would a white one. You know what I mean? And not a lot of people are willing to do that. And it's maybe it's his, it's his skin color, maybe it's his political party, but whatever it might be, it's just people need to start being a little harder on the public servants because they are our employees and we pay them for that, so they should be doing the job they're supposed to be doing. We do indeed pay them, not always voluntarily, and and they certainly don't act like our employees. But that is that's that's the theoretical way they spin it to us. And RJ, I'm glad there's guys like us out there that are trying to, you know, whether you agree with us or not, at least we're trying to skirt around this dumbed down left right system. We're trying to get different ideas out there, reach people in a different way. And I'm certainly glad you're out there doing it, RJ. Before I let you go, let everyone out there know where they can find you, whether it's the social media, your YouTube channel, and anything else you got going on. My Twitter is relatively new. I've only been on Twitter for maybe like six months or so, but it's at RJ Brewer 1070, you know, like, like SB 1070. <laughs> My Facebook page is facebook.com backslash RJ Brewer 1070. Uh, I get the 1070 there quite often. And then um, my YouTube page is, I'm not quite sure what it is, but if you do an RJ Brewer search on YouTube and scroll down a little bit, you'll see my page. And, you know, I'm starting to build more subscribers and trying to get more videos out there. And, you know, social media is great because it really does help you reach people that otherwise wouldn't necessarily go on your website and look stuff. If you, the more outlets like, like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, that kind of stuff, even if you reach one person a day, it's, you're, you know, we're making a difference. And, you know, not everyone's going to agree with my political beliefs and, I have really good friends who don't agree with the word that I say, but they respect me because I have I never change. You know what I mean? I'm not going to let my surroundings or my friends dictate how I feel. My feelings are real, and they always will be. And um, you know, I'm just trying to uh, try to open people's eyes. I don't have an agenda. I don't do it for money. I'm not getting paid to, you know, to run down the government. I'm doing it because I think people need to wake up and see what's happening in our country. RJ Brewer, thanks so much for coming on the Lions of Liberty podcast today. And again, guys, be sure to go check him out over at Lucha Libre USA. His YouTube channel is Facebook. He's a really interesting guy. Thanks a lot for coming on, RJ. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. A former Supreme Court justice believes that the wording of the Second Amendment needs to be changed to reflect changing times. I'm Ben Swan with your Truth in Media Moment, brought to you in part by BenSwan.com. John Paul Stevens retired in 2010 after serving as an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court for 35 years. Well, now he wants to make a few changes to the Second Amendment. In his new book, Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution, Stevens proposes different wording for the Second Amendment that would drastically change its meaning. The Second Amendment currently says, quote, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, end quote. So what wording does Stevens think should be there instead? I'll tell you right after this. The destruction of constitutional liberties and endless foreign wars. The voice of the people silenced while lawmakers simply enrich themselves and the political class. I'm Ben Swan. It isn't about left versus right. No, the real fight is liberty versus tyranny. At BenSwan.com, we are breaking the left-right paradigm. We know that the American two-party system is broken and that to restore American liberty means to restore your rights as an individual. At BenSwan.com, we cover stories the national media won't touch, from the National Defense Authorization Act to nullification, militarization of police, and crony capitalism. 
We are the face of new media. VinceWan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. Former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens wants to change the wording of the Second Amendment to this. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms when serving in a militia shall not be infringed. He argues that change when serving in a militia is necessary to reflect changing times and that the founding fathers did not write the Second Amendment to protect the right to personal self-defense. He writes, emotional claims that the right to possess deadly weapons is so important that it's protected by the federal constitution distort intelligent debate about the wisdom of particular aspects of proposed legislation designed to minimize the slaughter caused by the prevalence of guns in private hands. So in short, Stevens wants to say that there is no right to firearms, no right to self-protection with a gun. What Stevens is actually attempting to do is claim that the right to own a firearm is only for certain groups. But the founders and framers absolutely did not see it that way. Stevens claims the founders didn't believe in a right to personal self-defense. How does that go along with any of the other Bill of Rights, which are all about personal rights, none of which are about corporate rights? Be sure to check out all the stories that affect your liberty online at benswan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. Do your kids want to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and a non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? Get your copy today at meetrompaul.com, also available on Amazon. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Visit meetrompaul.com. Keep the liberty movement moving. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, and thanks again to Glenn Jacobs there for reminding you that you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. As I mentioned earlier, he was the very first pro wrestler to appear on this show back in episode six. Highly recommend checking that out. And thanks to R.J. Brewer, wrestler number two, for coming on the show today. The big issue that R.J. is out there speaking about is the issue of immigration. And it's certainly one that seems to spark some very intense debate. And I think R.J. certainly has some valid points when you do think of the issue in the context of the current system. We pay taxes. We get services for those taxes. You know, we get to use the roads, other government-provided services, parks, all that good stuff. You know, sometimes, I guess, we get paid to get pulled over on those roads, too, so maybe not all the services are ones we want. You know, and the argument goes, why should people who aren't citizens and maybe don't pay those same taxes into that system, even if we don't like that system, why should people get those services? Why should they be able to come here and just use our roads, use our parks, get welfare, go to school, all that stuff? And as I said in a little mini rant there during my conversation with R.J. Brewer, 
These are sort of separate issues to me. I think that's kind of a distraction to the real issue at hand. You know, the real problem here is that government socializes absolutely everything, including borders. Now, there's nothing wrong with the concept of borders. In fact, I would even argue that borders are a very important libertarian concept, but not the borders of coercive states that simply rule over their citizens and tell them where they can and can't go, who they can and can't work with, how much they can work for. The important borders are those of private property. And when you have and respect private property, the private property owners can make certain rules restricting who goes on their property. More often than not, they don't. <laughs> More often than not, regular people like to interact freely. The free market provides us so many things that we have the ability for individuals to freely exchange their own property, their own labor, and the things that they acquire from that labor. In a private property society, there would be nobody, no overall coercive authority preventing someone from traveling to another area that might have difficult conditions, as parts of Mexico certainly do. As long as a private property owner allows you on his property, you can make any arrangement with that private property owner, whether it's renting property on his place, buying his property, or going and working for that person at an agreed-upon rate. These are free exchanges between free individuals. And if we end this coercive system that takes money from everybody and redistributes it all over the place in all sorts of different ways, many of which we don't like, most of which we don't like, the concern over who gets what completely disappears. If we stop locking people up for nonviolent crimes, which is the vast majority of people in prison today, the concern over illegals, quote-unquote illegals, in overcrowded jails disappears. And I think the current immigration debate largely distracts from the issues. It focuses a lot more on the symptoms than the overall problem, even when there is some merit to the argument. And while R.J. Brewer and I don't fully agree on the surface of this issue, when we really break it down to the issues of individual liberty, we can agree that a lot of those problems do go away on their own in a truly free society. And that's something we strive for. That's why I do what I do here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. That's why I strive to put it out each and every week, each and every Thursday. You can have a new podcast. And if you subscribe on iTunes or subscribe on the Stitcher radio app, it'll be there right for you. Every single Thursday, you can listen right on your mobile device, on your computer. And don't forget, the Lions of Liberty podcast now streams every single Friday night on Daily Paul Radio. That's dailypaulradio.com. Every Friday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, you can hear a new episode of Lions of Liberty Podcast. Just another arena, another way we are further reaching out and trying to further get our message of liberty out to people and keep this conversation going. So please do check us out at Daily Paul Radio, dailypaulradio.com. You can also stream directly from the Daily Paul website, dailypaul.com. And of course, while you're searching the internet, don't forget to come on back to Lions of Liberty, to our homepage, lionsofliberty.com. Find us on the social media, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty, Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. Find us on Google+. Find us everywhere. And find other people. Keep reaching out to other people and pushing these conversations. How are we ever going to sort these issues out if we're not talking about them? And that's why we do what we do every single week here at Lions of Liberty. And we hope you'll keep coming back. And until next time, guys, just please don't forget, I need you to do me a favor and live long. And live free.